if you have your Bibles, turn over to John uh, chapter 20, verse 19. And while you're turning there, let me tell you where we're headed with this message. Many today preach that salvation is one and the same as the baptism in the Spirit. They refer to the day of Pentecost as being the birth of the church. But by preaching the gospel this way, they eviscerate the uniqueness of the baptism and also nullify the power of the Spirit and the power of the gospel. Listen to what uh, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, to the church there in Thessalonica. He writes, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance or conviction. The gospel isn't just a creed. It's not uh, ascribing to some political affiliation. It is a gospel of spiritual power, and that spiritual power works its way out into the natural. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He says, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. One translation says, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk or chit-chat, but in power. You notice that Paul emphasizes the power of the gospel. It's not about slick preaching. It's not about just word only where, you know, you, you decide or you're persuaded. There is spiritual operations going on in the preaching and the receiving of the gospel. And we're going to see that in the gospel of John and also in the book of Acts. Now, turning over to John 20, let me kind of set the scene for you because this is the day that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Now, before that, remember the Passover. He met with his disciples in a room and celebrated the Passover, but he turned it into the Lord's Supper because he took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat it. And he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Take and drink it. And the disciples did so. Now remember that Peter had that revelation that Jesus was the Messiah. And you know, we as a church have never drilled down into the importance of that last supper in the eyes of the disciples because they were Jews. And they have this Messiah at the head of the table saying, this is the blood of the new covenant. When they ate that bread and drunk that wine, they were pledging their loyalty, undying affection, and undying loyalty to this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And then what happens after the Last Supper? They go out, they sing a hymn, and they go to the garden. Eventually, the authorities come to arrest Jesus. Peter pulls out his sword and he starts swinging it because it's on now. The revolution is on. He cuts off one of the ears of the soldiers and Jesus tells him, put your sword down, Peter. Now to the disciples, when that happens, 
it's game over for them. This Messiah really isn't a Messiah anymore. Why? He's being arrested. He's being taken into Jewish custody. There's no more revolution. And then eventually they find out he's going to be crucified. He's not just going to be let go. He's going to be crucified. And that crucifixion occurs under Deuteronomy chapter 21. This is the worst thing that could happen. And so Jesus is handed over to the Romans to be crucified. And if you recall on Golgotha, how the Jews mocked him and criticized him. This was the disciples' leader. This is who they had pledged their loyalty to and what Jesus dies on Good Friday. And he is buried in a tomb. Now, we come to John 19. Earlier on in the chapter, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and finds out, finds there's nothing there. There's no body there. She calls the disciples, and they run, and they make a short investigation. They don't see anything there, and then they leave. And John writes this in verse 9, For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Nobody had been raised from the dead before. And there had been so-called messiahs in the past who were killed and they were not resurrected. So we come to John 20 in verse 19. And we read this. Then the same day at evening, the same day that Mary Magdalene finds that the tomb is empty, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Now we can understand a little bit more about that fear of the Jews because the leader had been killed. The Messiah, their Messiah, had been killed, had been crucified. So, you know, what, what's logical? Well, the Jews are going to come after them now. Why? Because they pledged their loyalty to this new covenant. They were, in the Jews' eyes, now apostates. So now the disciples are in hiding. And then what do we read? We read, Came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Now get the scene here, because we, we usually just roll over that because we just think, we know, we know what it was like. This had never happened before. You've got the disciples all shuttered up in a room together, you know, kind of listening for every kind of noise and knock or you know, whatever might come to the door, being as quiet as they can. They're in hiding. And all of a sudden, their leader, who they have pledged their loyalty to, appears out of nowhere. And he's not a ghost. He's not an apparition. He's not some kind of mirage. He shows them his hands and his side. Yeah, I'm the one who was crucified, and I have come back from the dead. How weird that would be. 
how extraordinary the scene is, really. I mean, we gloss over it, but think about this. There's a resurrected man in their midst. The one that they had slept with, traveled with, heard the preaching and all the rest, he's resurrected from the dead. Had never happened before, and he's got the scars, he's got the holes and the slit in his side to prove it. And he's standing there right in front of him. He tells them, go ahead and handle me. This is in another gospel. Go ahead and handle me for flesh. So Jesus says to them again, peace be unto you. And he says this, as my father hath sent me, even so send I you. And notice he says, hath sent me. You go back in the Greek and that's perfect, which means that there is a past event that has uh, effect in the present and also actually in the future. So what that means is the Father had sent Jesus who had effectuated redemption and that redemption continues on. Why? Because he was crucified, buried, and resurrected. Now, Jesus says, even so, send I you. And send is present tense. Why? Because the sending is continuous. It does not abate. But we're going to see some nuances about this sending. Let, we'll get to that in just a minute, but let's read on. And it says, And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith to them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And that's our primary scripture we want to understand from the message today. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. All the translations say breathes on them, but when you go back in the Greek, it's breathed in them. The translators are looking at this from a physical point of view, when actually what Jesus is doing is a spiritual operation. He breathed into them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now that let's unpack this a little bit so we understand the significance of what he is doing. He is now resurrected. And when you read, uh, when you read in Timothy, he was made alive again in spirit. You remember when he died on the cross, he died separated from God. He was made sin on the cross, but then he was made alive again in spirit. And what you see him doing here is something that you see in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis. Now, we're in the Gospel of John, and when you go to John 1.1, he echoes Genesis. He says, in the beginning. And when you go to Genesis 1.1, you read the very same words. In the beginning. And back in Genesis, you read about the creation of man. The creation, the first creation of Adam. God takes six days to, what, make creation he makes the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. He makes all the land and all the cattle. And then he makes Adam. He makes man. But he does something very different with man than he does with anything else in his creation. And that's in verse 7. We read this. 
And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So what you see here is something that is very unique. Absolutely unique. God breathes into man his own spiritual materiality. Man becomes a spiritual being. He's a natural being, but he also becomes a spiritual being at that point in time. Now, what Jesus is doing in John 20 is he is reenacting Genesis 2-7. He is the resurrected Lord, and he breathes into his disciples reenacting Genesis 2-7 and says, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. What's happening here? They are becoming new creations in Christ. They are receiving his spirit. He was made alive again in spirit, and he breathes into them his own materiality. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.45. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. In other words, he was made a spiritual being. And you see that through the progressive revelation of the New Testament. That's what that means. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. He says the last Adam, meaning Jesus, was made a quickening spirit or a life-making spirit. That's more literal. And so when he breathes into the disciples, he is what? He's making life of their spirit. He's giving them eternal life. New creations in Christ. In fact, Paul coins the term here in Romans 8, 9. He says, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of him, none of his. So they're recreated with the new spirit of Christ, born from above. And you get that from John 3. Jesus said, no man will see the kingdom of God unless or except he be born from above. And so now they are born again. But when you skip down in John 20, this is one thing that I want to point out here. Now remember that Jesus said, as the Father hath sent me, so send I you. And he breathes into them. But then you go down to verse 26. In 26, it says this. In fact, let's go back up to 24 just to get some more context. John writes, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I, w- I will not believe. But notice verse 26. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them, and then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Now, what I want to focus in on in this verse is that eight days after Jesus appears to the disciples, 
they have still shut themselves up. They are still in hiding. They've been born again, but they're still in hiding eight days later. And remember, Jesus said, as the Father hath sent me, so send I you. But they're not going anywhere at this point in time. Right? I mean, they're, they're still huddled together. And Jesus appears, and what he does is he tells Thomas, okay, well, put your, put your fingers in my, in my hands and in my side so you will believe. And blessed are those who do not believe. But notice that the disciples still are fearful, fearful for themselves, even though they have been recreated. Now, let's go over to the book of Acts. And let's go to Acts 2, verse 4. And we read this. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. Now notice verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, notice verse 4 when it starts out, and Luke writes, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, in fact, well, we can, uh, we can kind of shorten this up a little bit. Go down to verse 14, because verse 14 says, but Peter standing up with the eleven. Now, let's stop there and take this in. We go to the book of Acts. When we go to the books of, book of Acts, Jesus has ascended. And if you remember in John's gospel, he says, it's expedient for you that I go away so the spirit of truth may come. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. And therein, he's talking about the baptism, the pouring out of the spirit. So when you go back to John 20, you see that they had to become born again to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that they were born again. And here what you see in verse 14, when you compare it to verse 4, is that what? They were all filled with the Spirit. And then in verse 14, you see that although out of there were 120 filled with the Spirit, but it says here that Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice. Well, Peter was, was there in the room in John 20. And the disciples were there in the room in John 20. And Jesus said to them in the room, receive ye the Holy Ghost. But here they were all filled with the Spirit. So we see two operations going on. One, salvation, being born, being born anew, born from above, and that is in John 20. And then we see that these Christians, these New creatures in Christ received a second definite experience, and that is the baptism of the Spirit in Acts 2. Now, you read the rest of Acts 2.14. It says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea 
and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. What do you see there? You see a very dramatic change. Peter was in the room, shut up for fear of the Jews. Eight days later, after being born again, he is what? Shut up in the room for fear of the Jews. In Pentecost, he is filled with the Spirit, and he stands up. And he doesn't stand up alone. He stands up with the eleven. And then they speak to whom? They speak to the Jews, ye men of Judea. You see? You see what the second operation, the baptism does? It gave them a boldness of being witnesses that actually salvation did not give them. That's why you see in Luke when, when Jesus speaks to the disciples, he sends them out, but he says, wait, tarry in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Because we need that power in order to be witnesses of the gospel. That is the, the scriptural prescription. And when you go back to 1 Thessalonians that we read before, Paul was a spirit-filled believer. And he said, our gospel came unto you, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he was baptized in the Spirit. And then that's also uh, consistent with 1 Corinthians 4 that we read. For the kingdom of God is not chit-chat, it's not talk, it's not word only, it is power. And that's what God wants for his people he wants them to have that spiritual power to be his witnesses in the earth. Now, let's look at the book of Acts and just see how this plays out. Uh, go to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to start reading in verse 5. Just so you can see confirmation of how this framework works and how it's scriptural. Luke writes, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them, and the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies, and that were lame, were healed. And there was great joy in that city." Notice that Philip, and when you read about Philip, you understand that he's an evangelist, and evangelists preach Christ. They get people born again. And here you see that he preached in the city, and the people became born again. In fact, verse 12, But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. These people got born again at the preaching of Philip. But see, the account doesn't end there. Once they were born again, you skip down to verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. Receiving the word of God is they had been born again. They sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, 
pray for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Well, there's the baptism. In verse 16, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. So you see that there are two definite experiences. One is salvation. One is being born anew from the Spirit, and it is receive ye the Holy Ghost. And that's consistent with what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But there is a second definite experience that the Lord wants for all of his kids, all people born again. And there is the evidence of speaking in other tongues. But you see that there is a boldness that comes upon the believer who is baptized in the Spirit. So to sum up, we see that, yes, salvation is absolutely necessary. You know, because Jesus said, tells Nicodemus, no man shall see or experience the kingdom of God unless he be born from above. Absolutely necessary. But we see the evidence in John that even men who are born again are inward directed, looking out for themselves, looking out for their own safety, so to speak. And we also see that in, in the modern body of Christ. Why? Because those Christians who are saved but not baptized in the Spirit, what? Everything is all about their own maturity. You know, God is perfecting them, or God is working out something with them. Well, that's, that kind of mimics or that mirrors what we see with the disciples. They are shut up in the room. They're born again. Eight days later, they are still in the room. They haven't gone anywhere. But you see what a change happens with the baptism in the Spirit. You see that it is a gospel of power. And that power is the power of being a witness. Being a witness, you see the change with Peter and also the other 11 disciples. Instead of fear of the Jews, actually they're bold as anything to go out to the Jews to explain what the gospel is all about now. And they're not thinking of themselves. In fact, they have emptied themselves of themselves. You know, Peter and John were arrested by the Jews later on in the accounts. And uh, the Jews say, don't preach anymore in this name. And Peter and John say, what? They say, well, we're not going to obey you. We're going to obey the Lord. We're not going to stop preaching in this name no matter what you do to us. Well, that's one thing. That's one benefit of the baptism of the Spirit. It is a gospel of power, and it's the power of being a witness. Hallelujah. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And what did he preface that on? Or what was the predicate? It was the baptism of the Spirit. So if you haven't been baptized in the Spirit, you need to find out how to be baptized. You need to find someone who is baptized, a minister who is baptized in the Spirit to lay hands on you for that second definite experience to get in line with the gospel. Hallelujah. Let me conclude with a, um, with a benediction from the book of Colossians. 
For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, who has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, the firstborn of us. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. Hallelujah.